Hi, lovely listeners. Welcome back to Down to Brown. This week, you know the topic. It is how to be a bad Indian daughter. With phrasing like that, you might wonder, damn, that's provocative. What are we going to talk about? A cocaine binge? Tattooing your inner eyelid? Or maybe someone who built an ant colony that is life-size and inhabits it? But I hate to disappoint you, it is none of the above. When we talk about the concept, quote, bad Indian daughter, end quote, we're not just actually limiting this to women or Indian women for that matter. This can apply to men, it can apply to the broader South Asian diaspora, and it can apply outside of the South Asian diaspora. So why is that? All of us growing up are toggling multiple identities. And we grow up in communities, families, support structures that send implicit and explicit messages about what to consume, what to wear, what to eat, what to practice, who to socialize with, who to marry, who to associate with. And that's just scratching the surface. So we have all these things that we grow up thinking about, and we are in the nature versus nurture battle, that's our nurture. But as we grow up, we might start to challenge them. We might question them and start to individuate from that concept that we were told this is the standard or threshold for what is acceptable, what is not acceptable. And so in our own ways, we kind of have to be rebels and trying to sort through, okay, that's how my community did it. That's how my parents did it. But how do I want to do it? And we all make a choice in terms of how we want to live our lives in our journey to find our most authentic, true selves. Millennials and Gen Zers who might have been a little younger at the time, you might remember some of the movies that were coming out. Um, Well, one of them being 1991, Mississippi Masala. And then in kind of the just cusp of the 2000s, 2001 through 2004, you saw movies like Bend It Like Beckham, Monsoon Wedding, Bride and Prejudice. And these were all centered around the friction that a lot of the times the women felt in trying to take what they grew up with, sort through it and decide what was best for them. And it didn't always mean that Western life was right. So let's make sure we clarify. But it's about this is what my culture historically has wanted for me, but what do I want for myself now that I have different identities that I'm balancing? So this is a conversation about inner conflict that has started from beyond our times. And here today, Shaanashi Shah, social impact strategist, and I talk about how in order to become our best selves, we had to be the, quote, bad Indian daughter, according to this broader standard in our communities, so that we could live our most authentic lives. Now, before we get started, just a quick reminder to follow us on Instagram at down to brown under dash, because the one without the under dash was already taken. So whoever that is, good taste. (laughs) 
Hi, Shanahi. Thank you so much for joining me at Down to Brown. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited for this. So Shanahi, tell us a little about you. Yeah, so I am in San Francisco as of two weeks ago. That's probably the biggest development (laughs) in my life. And um, my work, I would say that I'm a social impact consultant. And so I do a number of different things. So I'm a social worker. I have my master's in social work. Um, I started my work in traditional nonprofits. So I worked in the education access space and then workforce development. Uh, I did some work in, in homeless services. And then I went over to the corporate sector to do CSR. So corporate social responsibility uh, companies, volunteerism, grant making, and their diversity and inclusion initiatives. So that was kind of all under my purview when I was at a nine to five. And now I work on a number of different projects. So I work for different corporations and organizations that are in the social sector that are working to advance certain targets. And um, I'm actually next month, I hope, uh, once I figure out how to use Instagram, I'm going to <laughs> launch uh, my my own business called Flag Queens, where um, we're selling LGBTQ positive flags. Um, And 20% of the proceeds are going to go to an organization in New York that works with um, street homeless youth and providing community and other wraparound services. That is incredible. So a lot of women probably can connect to this concept of the bad Indian daughter This is something that at some point I wonder if all of us had at least a fleeting thought of, am I one? Do I want to be one? Etc. So as you and I talked about it, I'm curious, what do you think it means to be a bad Indian daughter? Yeah. So I would say, I I think my definition uh, is actually kind of rooted in a quote by one of my favorite writers, Glennon Doyle. So her quote is, a woman becomes a responsible parent when she stops being an obedient daughter. Mm. And so for me, uh, and I'm not a parent, but um, that really just punched me in the gut, especially that term about obedient daughter. Uh, I think it's so deeply embedded in our culture. And so, so much of me growing up, I realized was to be the good Indian girl, the good Indian daughter that, you know, got got the good grades, came home, you know, had a life plan. Uh, you know, was marryable, quote unquote, uh, you know, kind of fit all of those kind of check boxes. And what that really turned into was uh, me coming into my own meant that I really needed to abandon a lot of that. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably a lot of people's journeys, but specifically being okay with the disapproval of not only my parents, but just like aunties and uncles more broadly, I think, and kind of looking at yourself as a bad Indian daughter when you think they're looking at you as a bad Indian daughter. And that comes from disagreeing with with the things that they're saying. Uh, it comes from my actions kind of seeming like they are in defiance of mm-hmm. what they wish, uh, even though I know that that's what's right for me. Right. And it makes you sometimes feel like, I'm just, why am I so difficult? Like, why am I this way? Right? Like the Michael Scott thing towards Toby almost like, why are you the way that you are? Um, (laughs) And it manifests in so many different ways, like from the small to big. I mean, from the way you dress, what you're eating, how you're sitting in the house, 
how you're then dating, how you are approaching school, the classes you pick, et cetera. So I think there's such a wide range of experiences that we can all, you know, at least connect with in some way. Yeah. For you, how how was your journey with the piece of, could I be a bad Indian daughter? When did that question occur to you? <laughs> you know what? I would love to tell you that it was, you know, when I was a teenager or even in my 20s. But if mm-hmm. I'm going to be perfectly honest, it was in my 30s. I think that's when I, I really came to a reckoning and probably really started to embrace it in the last couple of years. And mm-hmm. so it has not been something that was deeply embedded in me at all. Um, yeah, I think that I it really kind of came, came to a head, I think, when finally the idea of subconsciously minimizing myself and doing all of the things and and kind of, like I said, checking all the boxes or following all the rules was just so painful and so inauthentic to who I was. And mm-hmm. so I think when I could no longer live with that cognitive dissonance, I really needed to understand like what is this other identity that I think I have to embrace. I'm not being a quote unquote good Indian daughter. I'm not doing everything that they're telling me to do. I'm not feeling the ways that I'm being told to feel. And so what is that if I'm not a good Indian girl? Mm-hmm. Who the hell am I? And and that yeah. really just turned into, okay, well, I guess then, you know, maybe I'm going to have to be a bad daughter. Like maybe I'm going to have to, and, and again, like I would say that a therapist help is really helpful in this, yes. um, or, you know, uh, Brown Girl Therapy is another resource that I know we talked about, but there are a lot of resources that can kind of help you navigate some of this cognitive dissonance, but it really kind of comes down to this, this question of, will I still, will my parents still love me? Or at least will I still be able to love myself if I let go of all of these things that I have been defined as or told to be and just embrace who I am and what I want to do in the world? Yeah, absolutely. I think the way you boiled it down, like I'm so impressed and so happy for you, right? That you reach that kind of freedom that you allowed yourself and it has to be given by ourselves to ourselves. However, Mm -hmm. it's not easy. So I want to, you know, dive into that a little bit because I know it's easier said than done. I think like it's also especially difficult with our culture because, you know, you have this clash of collectivist culture that we're coming from and then you're trying to navigate an individualistic culture in America. And I know it's I don't think there's either I don't think either one is correct in any way that I don't think there's a right or wrong of like what type of society should one be in. But Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really helpful for us because we do get this privilege of seeing two different ways of doing society and picking and choosing what we want to do. Um, But it is certainly, again, not easy at all. So can you give me an example of something that you experienced that really helped you learn this lesson of shit, maybe I just need to kind of let go of this for me. Oh, um, let me think about that for a second. Let me just say, though, yeah. I just I was so caught up in in the way that you described it, because I think that nails it exactly. Um, and I just want to elevate that, which is that you were talking about the the two different cultures, the collectivistic and the mm-hmm. individualistic. And I think uh, with my with my Indian girlfriends, we talk about this enough where there's an awareness around it. But I think it's really easy to kind of 
you know, say that one is negative when the other one's serving you. Right. Mm -hmm. And and that's been the case for both of them. Like there have been times where I've been so grateful to be in America in an individualistic culture and really embrace that and feel really frustrated by, you know, the collectivistic identity and kind of the self-sacrifice and all of those things. Um, And then, you know, the opposite is true too, where especially I think, you know, interestingly during a global pandemic, when we're all trying to figure out ways to take care of each other and connect, you know, the collectivistic culture has really pulled through, I think, in so many ways. And so I really want to elevate that because, like I said, I I think when we're talking about choosing one or the other or anything like that and kind of stepping away from one or the other, rather, it is so painful. And, And that is, I think, of everything that I've talked to to friends about that's what's being talked about the least, in my opinion, which is what is the pain of Mm -hmm. letting go of either of these things? So I just want to pause. I I really loved how you framed it. What is the pain of letting go? Because you're right, like there is a pain in letting go of both to some degree. And then there's a joy in embracing both as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm I'm curious what. For you, did you have a moment where you really went through this, like an experience where you were really feeling the tension between, you know, what do I embrace? What do I let go? And perhaps to the detriment of a relationship or perception of you that you were attached to? Yeah, um, I think the perception of me that really nails it. So I think more letting go of the Indian standards and that that collectivistic culture and also um, the kind of, I, I would say like the, I, I always think of it as the life you were meant to live. Like I, mm-hmm. I think about letting go of the idea of the life I was meant to live. And what that really is, is the life that I was told to live. Mm-hmm. And so I did have that point. I mean, I've been through it so many times, but I think really kind of starting to embrace what I would consider my my slightly off the beaten path life. So um, for context, uh, I turned 34 a couple of months ago. So I'm in my 30s. I'm not anywhere close to married, which mm-hmm. is a big part of the expectation in our culture yeah. and also my my chosen professional path. So um, I chose social work. I think early on that was really kind of breaking away from the mold. Uh, yeah, even though, you know, you did was... it all. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. But actually, even within the social work realm, I have to say, I think what was even harder was that I didn't have a very linear path and I still don't in my professional life. So early on, I was working for a nonprofit uh, for five, my first five years of work. That was, I mean, it was great. It was very well defined. It was easy for people to kind of figure that out. Afterwards, uh, and I know we can talk about this more, but I've, I've been in a, a series of random jobs and projects and things like that. And I think having all of those things that don't fit in neatly. I don't have the traditional nine to five with the linear, you know, trajectory. Mm-hmm. I don't have the the law degree or the business degree or the medical degree, obviously. And I don't have the partner at in my 30s. And I think all of those things together used to cause me so much internal pain. And sometimes it is still a trigger. But for the most part, I think I, I really had to get past that and and take control of my life and really feel feel the joy in my life actually and start to really understand what that is and not considering my life to be like a, a periphery type of situation mm-hmm. and really just owning it and being like, yeah, okay, this is who I am in my 30s. I don't know a lot of people like that. 
my parents and the aunties and uncles don't really quite know how to define it. And yet this is who I am. This is a product of my choices. And I'm really proud of my choices, actually. Absolutely. And I love that energy of like, damn right. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, that is exactly how I hope we embrace it. Yeah. You're, I mean, I had so many things that I thought of when you were talking. Um, but I feel like that piece, like I can remember a conversation exactly with a relative once where this person was holding me accountable to things and expectations that were very typical of someone who maybe, yeah, like in the kind of our previous generations at the Mm -hmm. age of 26, kind of, you know, like, why weren't you doing this? Or I expected this of you. But then I thought about that. And I was like, that person didn't also go through this, where this person had to figure out love by themselves, they had to figure out career by themselves, they left their father's house and lived by themselves in an ambiguous time. And and no one forced me to. In fact, I fought to do that, right? Like, I want to stay single and find someone on my own. Um, mm-hmm. when my parents were putting similar pressure to get married. Um, but it, I remember being like, oh, that's so interesting. This person never experienced this. So it's so easy for them to expect me to act the way that they did when they were in a different place at that same age, right? Um, and But they weren't as kind of ambiguously left alone. Um, yeah. So for example, I touched on dating and that pressure at the age, like which you talked about too. I remember my, you know, like one of the worst fights I had with my parents was about like, why, where is your person? Like you've been dating for three years. Mind you, this was from the ages of 23 to, or 22 to 20. Oh, you were a baby. <laughs> exactly. Oh, no. So I was like, oh, I didn't realize like I should have been so productive at this point dating. And then I approached dating because at that point, my dad and I came to an agreement that if by 27, I can't find someone on my own, he said he would find someone for me in like a Telugu like marriage bureau thing. Um, and I was like, oh my gosh. So the way that I Instead of just realizing, like, I probably could let go of that pressure myself and just no one has to force me to getting married by 27. I put so much stress on myself to date and I lost the joy of dating. Mm -hmm. Now I contrast to my Gen Z sister who is 24 and dating and she has a really good mindset about it. She's not doing it out of anxiety. She feels very much in control of like, I want to do this with my life. There's so much time for me to get to that adult place. In the Mm -hmm. meantime, let me take advantage of my 20s and live my experiences, build my career. And like watching her has been such an interesting foil. Mm -hmm. So I'm leading this to also ask you, you know, I know we talked about your sister, but I'm sure it's different when you see your older sister and like think about your expectations for yourself. How has that dynamic in any way influenced the way that you've approached your bad Indian daughter life? (laughs) Um, You know, it's so funny that you asked that because I think for a lot of my friends with older sisters, I think that their older sisters in a lot of ways were kind of the models. Um, I, I think I've seen that quite a bit. And then the younger sisters were maybe slightly the more rebellious ones. Mm -hmm. I actually think in our dynamic, it was, we've kind of flip-flopped back and forth, but, um, but my sister, and I really respect her for this, like really kind of did things on her own early on, broke the mold, was willing to embrace the conflict. That's another theme that I think we'll probably get back to, but learning to really embrace conflict, I think that's really, really challenging. And I think she actually did that quite a bit in the family. And and in some ways to kind of balance that out 
And also, I think learning from her example and not necessarily wanting the conflict with my parents, I was actually more of like the quote unquote good Indian Indian daughter. So that traditional um, construct that I think I've I've seen was kind of flipped in our scenario. And so, but how I think that that really played out in terms of me embracing that kind of bad Indian daughter mindset, I think that's part of the reason why it happened for me so late. And also, I think it was a little bit more jarring for me because I was used to being like the Mm. harmonizer in the family. I was used to being the communicator. I was used to being the one that both sides relied on, you know, to communicate, especially when they had arguments and things like that. And so in a lot of ways, I think I was, you know, a, a partner to my sister, but then also like a kind of confidant to my parents mm. in, in certain ways. And then uh, really kind of relinquishing all of those identities, including that privilege, I think was was part of the kind of shock and a little bit of the painful process of me owning this. So mm-hmm. now I'm not the one that's, you know, the quote unquote good one, even though I, I never really liked that label, but I, I realized it was so influential on my identity. And, um, and kind of moving that over to, uh, yeah, me embracing a lot of conflict with them. And then my sister actually kind of stepping in and, and communicating with both parties. And I don't say this, I, I, I mean, my sister is by no means like a bad Indian girl or anything like that. What I'm, I'm really thinking about when we're talking about the good and bad, like I said, is really that, that conflict and mm-hmm. owning like the, the other emotions and like the anger sometimes and like, all of those things together, which our parents, at least like, yeah, our parents' generation really view as being bad or disobedient or mm-hmm. disrespectful. Absolutely. And I'm I'm so curious, like when you mentioned that piece of you were the peacemaker for your parents at a certain phase, and I completely understand like these roles sometimes like flip-flop. Mm-hmm. Um did they did you feel any sort of struggle of like now I have to betray my parents for so long I was the person who was mm-hmm. mediating and now I'm the one giving them the quote headache. Yeah, yeah, you <laughs> totally nailed it. And and also I just spent 10 months living with my parents during the pandemic. Um oh and gosh. so yeah, <laughs> so that was probably that flip dynamic hypercharged where mm-hmm. It was just, you know, it was me calling my sister a lot and God bless her. Like she would just, you know, she would remind me that one, I'm going to be out soon. She would kind of, again, communicate between both parties, but it was like, so it it was so foreign to me to kind of have to do that um, and be pissed at them all the time Mm -hmm. and really get into arguments with them. I, I really think that we probably had about... What, whatever the missing years of arguments were for us, maybe like five, six years of arguments in like 10 months. <laughs> oh my gosh, what a, con- <laughs> a condensed version. <laughs> you know, and at times I feel sometimes like this is where that duality conflict comes up is if, you're, if I'm talking to American friends, sometimes I find myself conscious, not because they're even making me feel any type of way, but that our attachment to parents is unique in Mm -hmm. South Asian culture, especially like you grow up so intertwined with each other. People, if one person is sad, the whole house is sad. If one person is going through a hassle, everyone goes through it. In some ways, it's beautiful. Some ways, it's also really problematic. But I, you know, I can't help but feel sometimes silly almost. Like, is it silly that I think about my parents so much? Like, am I supposed to be a little like less 
attached to them, especially because I've noticed like, for example, like you see like Ray Romano or like or like these types of shows where they really kind of um, make it a comedy of like, oh, you want to not be close to your parents. You want to kind of rebel. You don't have a good relationship with them, maybe. um, And that's okay. Um, Mm -hmm. But for me, I'd be like, whoa, that would create so much dissonance for me if I had to cut out a parent or, you know, like that, that just feels so much more possible. Um, And yeah, I can't help but feel like, is that kind of juvenile? Yeah. um, I think I've thought about that a lot. I've had similar experiences. And I think for me, what I've what I have come to a conclusion on is that, or what I've concluded rather from that is that it's neither good or bad. It just is. Mm-hmm. And then it's up to me to kind of take each, each incident and kind of pattern that we have and then reevaluate it. And why I say that is because, yeah, I mean, I've thought about that too. And again, same author that I quoted before, Glennon Doyle, I remember listening to her on a podcast and she called her family deliciously codependent. And I was like, <laughs> I well, I've that. never quite yeah, heard. I feel like she knows me. And so, so yeah, I feel that way too. And, you know, like there is so much beauty that comes as a result of this closeness. I really, I love what I have with my parents. And even though it's really frustrating and with my entire family, actually, like we, you know, like we are very intertwined, same as you're saying, like very emotionally intertwined in some ways, financially intertwined, like, and, and we really, there is a lot of opinion giving Mm. sometimes, oftentimes unsolicited, but oftentimes like really impactful and welcome. And so I don't, I, when I think about it, I'm like, would I want the opposite of this when I'm feeling very frustrated by this? And I'm like, oh, would I want, you know, one of my other friends, um, one of my other American friends has where it's like, they don't get into each other's business. They don't talk about this Mm -hmm. as much, but you know, we're losing really that, that closeness and that really true dependability, um, of the Indian familial connection. And, um, and I, I have settled on, no, I don't want to change it. And yes, sometimes it will frustrate me. And it is up to me to just own this. And then again, kind of shift these toxic patterns one Mm. by one. Absolutely. That is so powerful. Were you growing up told certain feminist stories? Like when you think back like to like your childhood and like the when you were talking about other family friends or, you know, other stories about South Asian women, do you remember any stories that were kind of disguised as, oh, they're being a bad Indian girl, but secretly you were like, oh, that's kind of interesting what she did right there. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's so funny because I, you know, when you asked me if there were feminist stories, I was like, I think there are pl- plenty of cautionary tales, but I don't yes. know. Um, yeah. So I, I think you were right. They were framed more as cautionary tales. I think the ones that I, I can't think of like broader general cautionary tales off the top of my head, but I can think of individuals, um, even like individuals in my family or family friends. And, mm-hmm. but that actually, um, I felt similarly where I kind of go back and reevaluate that as an adult, those stories. And I'm like, wow, actually like, these women yeah. were kind of badasses. Like they were always described as 
you know, too independent or something else, very modern, but it, there was this negative connotation to it. Unmarried came up a lot. Yes. <laughs> and so there was this like notion that like, that's why she could never get married. No one would have her kind of. Um, but when you're looking back on, when I'm looking back on these women's stories, I'm like, wow, you were like kind of a crazy badass in your generation. And, you know, we're really not celebrating that. I was not taught to mm-hmm. celebrate that. And now I think I, I celebrate it privately or, you know, I talk to a lot of my girlfriends of my generation about some of these stories and I'm like, you know what, like I, I've like listened to this story later or I've like reevaluated it as I mentioned. And, you know, I really want to celebrate, you know, my blank who turned out to be like a kick-ass individual that like kind of saved a bunch of people or whatever, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That is, I cannot agree enough. And (laughs) it makes me feel actually so sad the way that we've missed this opportunity. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that the beauty of our collectivist culture is that we adopt other, you know, our, the sorrows, the joys and everything of our community and help each other out. Um, and we're invested in it. Imagine mm-hmm. if we lived, we were able to realize that a step further and say, okay, if this woman is choosing her career over marriage, we're mm-hmm. going to get behind her and help elevate her so she doesn't feel like that society is one more thing for her to worry about. So I feel like the unrealized potential sometimes of that collectivist beauty is sad. Um, yeah. We could be just doing so much more with that type of community community and um. Yeah, let me just stop there. We could just just be doing so much more. Yeah, no, you you totally nailed it. I have a, a relative who, looking back, you know, she didn't basically like this family. Like my the family had an issue because she didn't give up her mother and her own side of the family, basically, and like prioritize her husband's. She was working. She bought, you know, like material things that made her happy. Mm-hmm. She drank. Um, she would like to socialize and party, party being not like sniffing Coke, you know, like partying (laughs) is literally like just having wine with girlfriends and friends. Um, but I remember how much it was sort of like, oh no, that's not how you should kind of thing. And to your point about the cautionary tale. And now I realize that's exactly my life. Right. So like, but I internalized it so much as like, a, oh my gosh, like, wait, you're not supposed to do that? Then what What are we doing here learning how to be independent and getting educated and going to college? Like, what? what is the direction we're supposed to go in? Mm-hmm. So I feel like sometimes it can also be just so confusing to hear these stories because ipso facto, you are becoming that person too in some way. And like, maybe you should. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked about our first born into family. Um, and then there comes a point in our lives where we might choose our other family, um, whether it's friends, it's our, our next family. For you, what does that look like? Yeah, that's a great question, um, especially coming from an Indian woman, because for me, my family, again, I mentioned I'm single, I'm in my 30s. Uh, which does not, by the way, seem like anything crazy to most of my other non-Indian girlfriends. <laughs> it's like, you know, we're just like, oh my God, everyone's ovaries are driving up or whatever. But like, that's really, I, I feel like it's just very much normalized by my community, especially my girlfriends in New York when I was living there. But um, but yeah, being single in your 30s, I think is very different for an Indian family. 
Um, and I will also give my parents the credit that they have been fairly progressive on this issue. And so uh, when I'm looking at my future family, one of the biggest things for me uh, that kind of drops so many Indian aunties and uncles jaws is that I don't want children. And I had actually made that decision. What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know. What? We're capable of Scandal. existing. <laughs> Can't and without propagating the species. It's insane. Um, yeah, exactly. And uh, the thing is, I had actually really uh, started to, I'd really started to think about that in high school and embracing that and then kind of voicing that uh, when I was in college, like right when I started. So when I was 18, when people knew mm-hmm. that about me. And uh, if we're talking about unsolicited opinions, that's like the number one. Put any 18-year-old Indian, like petite, child-looking Indian girl anywhere and, you know, have her say that she doesn't want children when she's older. And oh my gosh, you get so many people telling you all of their thoughts and opinions about what mm-hmm. you should and shouldn't do. So that was kind of the start of it. Um, but I will say that, and again, I, I really actually want to give my parents credit on this. Uh, they were good about it from the beginning. Like my my parents were supportive and, you know, they were like, yeah, maybe you'll change your mind, but maybe you won't. And we're okay with that. I remember my mom was like, you know, we don't need to be grandparents. Um, now my sister has given them, them that gift anyway, so it didn't even matter. But at that time, I just thought that that was, it was such a gift to be able to hear mm-hmm. that from a brown parent. And for my parents saying that to me, again, my, my like straight up like aunts and uncles that are related to me and my like mommies or mossies or whomever, you know, like they... I, I remember one of them straight up said, I can't believe my, your parents are letting you do that. When I had told her in my late 20s that I was not going to have children. And so yeah. so that was, it was just a really uh, interesting, powerful um, kind of dual narrative that you're getting <laughs> from everyone yeah. else. And then kind of what I want and what I've discussed with my parents. Now, I, I know that there are probably several women and brown women that don't want children that may not have their parents support. Um, because I, I think mine were kind of rare in that. And, um, and I, I think that's really difficult. But so when I'm thinking about my family looking forward, it's really, you know, myself, hopefully my partner, if I find the right person. Um, and then to me, actually, like I, I love my sister. I love my cousins. I love my friends. And a lot of them have had children. And so those are my babies. And that's enough for mm-hmm. me. Like I love, love, love my nephew. It's it's like kind of a concern, the amount of photos that I have on my phone <laughs> of him and his 10 months of existence. And I really, I'm so excited to be the best Masi that I can be. And I'm so excited to enrich my life with you know, my friends, children, and also my friends themselves and my work. And so yeah, that to me is a very full life. And um, I actually want to mention, it's so funny, I, I should have thought of this before, but when we were talking about being a bad Indian daughter, this was probably the root of it, like more before mm. all of the other things. This was the one thing that I think I could not convince myself was not true. I knew in yeah. my heart that it felt like it was true. And at 18, I had to embrace that. So as much as I was 
the good Indian daughter and all of the other ways, as much as I looked like, you know, the kind of the potential trophy wife for a lot of, a lot of moms with their sons, it was, you know, Mm -hmm. it was this thing that I really had to kind of embrace. And that would really kind of be jarring for, (laughs) for aunties and uncles. It's amazing though, too, because it's, I know you have a really good sense of humor about this now, but I think like, I, I hear some of the also like, that must have not been a super easy experience, right? Having to explain that or like sit through all these unsolicited lectures to your point. Mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes aunties and uncles, I'm like, you have never shown up for any like mundane day-to-day help, but you have such an opinion on like huge <laughs> ass life things. You're like, what the fuck? You know, like, where did this come from? Um, so that's already comical, but yeah. I also think it's not um, this is where, again, like our kind of multiple identities comes into play because American society is also very guilty of like you need to be a mother. People ask, like, I'm sure this isn't something exclusive to the South Asian community. Right. Mm -hmm. So it is something that I think gets even more compounded because I sometimes wonder, too, like the bad Indian daughter thing. Like, of course, there's Indian in there. So we're thinking about like our Indian society. But there's also a piece where sometimes our the culture around us also puts that pressure on on us. And so it's even more intense. And I, I do have a lot of sympathy for women who have to go through this whether or not they identify as South Asian. Yeah, 100%. Because the kid pressure is unreal. Mm-hmm. And how did you decide, um, do you mind me asking like your reasons for making that decision? Oh, no, not at all. Um, many people have asked that over the years. And, you know, I've had over 15 years of making this decision. So happy to share that with you. <laughs> but um, it, the truth of it is, I, I think the way that I best would describe it is that I feel like objectively, there are plenty of reasons not to have children, right? Like there Mm -hmm. is, there are a lot of sacrifices, of course, you know, financial sacrifices, certainly personal sacrifices that like just in terms of all of those components of having a child, there are a lot of reasons not to. And yet Mm -hmm. I would say like the greatest reason to have them, what kind of cancels out this entire entire ROI uh, kind of calculation is having this <laughs> deep desire to actually have a child and raise a child and love a child. And I think that that a hundred times over negates kind of all of the other reasons to not do it. And so I think mm-hmm. that if there's a if there's a feeling inside you that this is really something that you want to do, it is so beautiful and you should absolutely do it. For me, I I think like when I was a child, I just kind of assumed that I would be a mom because I didn't know anything else. It was kind of the same mm-hmm. way that, you know, people probably assumed they would have one of four jobs that they were described to them, you know, as a child. And so you're not, you don't have a lot of space for imagination other than that. And then, and then I actually met my first, this is so random, but I, I met a teacher that didn't have children that was married with two dogs. Uh, she was my junior year English teacher. And I just remember thinking like, what? I didn't know you could do that. Like, I didn't, what? <laughs> and yeah. so, so that was big for me. And then I really started kind of thinking about it and feeling into it. And I was like, you know what? Like it started as like, well, maybe I won't have children. And then it kind of turned into like, I I just don't think that I want them. And I like, it, it was just this inner part of me that kind of, that I, I really felt into 
Um, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I can't be more concrete than that, but I, I think no, I think that actually <laughs> makes a lot of sense, um, and that actually resonates. And I'm just so happy to hear someone explain that point of view because it's not often we get to hear that again in Indian, South Asian, or American society. Yeah, it's becoming a little bit more common, but it's always been kind of controversial. And I'm almost like, can we normalize it? Because you do need every type of woman and you need like I think to your point like you'll be a fantastic aunt and that is so impactful too um but if your purpose lies elsewhere then fulfill it because that's something that maybe someone else won't be able to do for us right so I get really like for me I was similarly like not really into kids and then I met my partner and I was like I still feel conflicted I froze my eggs and then I was like, okay, now I can see that one day with a specific person, I would want to do it. But Mm -hmm. I did the egg freezing because I purposefully wanted to delay it. Mm -hmm. Um, Instead, for me, the conflict has been the way that we've been raised with moms in Indian society is or South Asian society is just that the mom is so like all consuming that title and identity. And even, you know, you see American counterparts. So I'm actually honestly just afraid of being a mom. Um, I find the role really intimidating because it feels like you you have like in a good way, your thoughts are replaced, obviously, by this being you brought in as it should. Mm-hmm. You have brought this child in. But the amount that you then have to reprioritize, give up your dreams and maybe, you know, shift that piece. You can't think about yourself. And I know that makes me sound selfish, but I feel like I'm not done being selfish and I'm very afraid of getting to that place where, you know, I remember watching my mom, she'd make something work so hard and then she would have the like last bite of it Mm -hmm. and give it to us first. And I was like, do I have to be that person one day? Like people, when I share that point of view, feel like, no, you don't have to worry. It's great. It's beautiful. But sometimes I don't feel super heard about the fact that, No, it is kind of a terrifying role. Like Mm -hmm. it does, it is really consuming as it should be. But once you're there, can you want to be a mom later, but also be afraid of it, basically? Yeah, no, I, and I, I'm really glad that you actually shared all of that. And there are just a couple of pieces that I want to pull out of that because I think that's really important. You are right in that when you have a child, and I've seen this firsthand with all of my friends really, is that there is an identity loss. Your entire mm-hmm. identity is gone. And I think it's really as self-actualized women, it's important to acknowledge that, you know, and then to really be mindful about, is that something that I want or not? And so having that anxiety, I think, first of all, I think is not uncommon at all, uh, given everything that I've seen of my friends and people that I've worked with. And also, I wish that people would be so intentional about their decision to have children. And again, I will say this, like I remember it was was kind of viewed as a default thing, right? Like growing Mm -hmm. up, it was like you just default into having children. And I know a lot of people that I, I suspect kind of defaulted into having children. And I don't think that was to the benefit of the child or the parent. And, um, and also having owned this decision for myself, like um, I, I really want to say that I, I think the only population kind of through my 20s that I felt were having to make the same level of decision and analysis 
um, and reflection on wanting to have a child were my gay Mm. friends. Because again, you have to come in with that level of intention. It's not just something that's going to happen and it's not just something you can default into. And so I actually found my conversations with my gay friends to be really, really helpful. Mm. Um, and, and we can kind of see each other in that. So I, I thought that that was really beneficial. And, um, and I, I think it also, it, I mean, it had started with me kind of saying, I don't want children and then them kind of coming back with, you know, we've talked about it and this is how we're feeling or not feeling. And so I think that that experience is also really powerful. But, um, but simply, I think right now, like we have so much decision-making power that I almost feel like people that default into it, sometimes in, in my most compassionate place, I think I feel like sad for them but then also like i'm i'm sure that you know i'm sure they're also happy about it in the end i I know you can probably look at your child's face and be like no it was all worth it but um and kind of in my least compassionate place i I am just like you know i wish you had spent like a quarter of the time thinking about it Mm -hmm. that i have spent reflecting on my decision and going back and forth and talking to people about it and crying about it and you know all of these other things um, and so I, it would be really nice because then I would know that you're, again, applying that level of intention to raising your totally. child, which is really the ultimate outcome that we're going for. Um, I, I kind of glossed over this a bit, but I, w- I do want to say the fact that it, I mean, my decision to not have children has ended relationships, like significant um, romantic relationships for me, for sure, two out of the three of my my uh, serious mm. boyfriends, ultimately, it was because of that. And it was nothing that I had ever hid. But, you know, it was something where we I presented it at the beginning, we were kind of talking about and navigating it, like navigating through it, they were figuring out their journeys on it and how important it was to them. And these were all wonder, like my, <clears throat> all of my exes, I would say have been great guys. But, um, but yeah, and so like, it's not just you know, an easy process to kind of embrace this. Um, It is painful. A lot of people's journeys are really, really difficult. And it's also okay to not know whether you want them or not. I think it's something that you should certainly, again, navigate with your partner and keep open communication because it can be really challenging, of course, to kind of deal with that afterwards. But, um, But I really... You know, even the experience of not having children or not wanting children is certainly not, you know, a singular experience. There are a lot of kind of layers to that, and people think about that very differently. And um, and the other thing that I I just want to say is for you know I I, I should have mentioned this before, but um, again, when I'm thinking about children and when I'm thinking about marriage, if I really had to kind of oversimplify my thoughts, I think it would come down to when I'm thinking about the idea of marriage, mm-hmm. it is it is insane, right? Like to to chain yourself to someone for 50 years or yeah. you know however long you're you're likely to live and kind of intertwine everything. It's wild, and yet it is something where I feel like it's an experience that I want to have to feel satisfied. It's yeah. just something that I would really like to experience in my heart, and so it doesn't matter what my thoughts are about it or against it or anything, but it's something that I want. When I'm thinking about children, and I I suspect that this might be the case for some other people, but I don't, I don't have that. Like it is, it does sound really crazy and intense, but that like desire of it's something that I so want to experience. And I feel like my life would not feel complete without experiencing that necessarily. 
that is not there for me with children. And if there's someone listening that feels that way too, it is okay. And take your time and reflect on it. I'm so glad you shared all this. I was actually going to ask you that question when we were like, uh, uh-uh. um, I was going to ask you, how has this affected dating um, for mm-hmm. you? So you actually went ahead. We must be driving. Did you ever feel at any point with some of the breakups like, I wish this wasn't something that was so important to me? Mm-hmm. Or have you felt rather... Well, that's just me, and it's unfortunate it didn't line up because especially if you've been open about this from the beginning and some of these relationships, you said that person had to figure it out and kind of get there, too, of, like, how important it was to them. Was there ever a feeling of also, hey, how come you couldn't have figured this out before? (laughs) We, like, made more progress, and, you know, I became more attached to you and maybe at least saw the marriage step with you. Yeah. Um, I would say it's been – majority the latter with kind of just sprinkles of the former a little bit Mm -hmm. where I, I do feel like, um, I, I know that this is how I feel. And I, again, I like, I just fully embrace it and I've had again, a journey to get there, but that's been okay. I think where there have just been moments of frustration or sadness, really, it's, it's more sadness than anything else is, is the kind of result of that where it means that this means that this is going to end our relationship. That being said, I've never broken up with someone where ultimately I didn't think it was the right decision. So there isn't someone that exists right now where I'm mm-hmm. like, look, if it was just about the kids thing and we could just work that out, we would have been the perfect match. I would say in my last relationship, uh, it was with a a great guy. And I feel like we were, you know, very connected and it was just a really beautiful, very kind relationship. From the beginning, we knew about this kids thing. I, I never resented the fact that we lasted as long as we did. Um, knowing that because I know that he was, he was really thinking through his decision about whether or not kids were really important to him. He had always grown up expecting, you know, kids and he loved them and um, and he was just taking his time to figure out, like, is it something that's so important to me that I want to let go of this relationship? And had we broken up any time before when we did, I would have felt like it was premature and unfinished. However, when we did break up, and especially like the year afterwards, um, and we're still on good terms, so we've reflected back on it and kind of thought about it and you know, was it a good decision had it not just been for the kids? And each of us actually had like one kind of big doubt about the other person and our compatibility. And it was not, I don't think either of us would have chosen to break up based on just that one doubt, but because the kids thing kind of pushed us over the edge in retrospect, we feel like it was a good decision. Mm -hmm. And I'm really grateful for that. And so in some ways it is, it has been a sort of North star or a guiding light, even though, yeah, in the moment, sometimes it just, you feel like it sucks and it's really heartbreaking. Absolutely. I think that's something that a lot of us can connect with. And especially looking back, you know, for in this example, you said kids, but a lot of the times the match piece is even more important. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I wish sometimes um, both American and South Asian society could understand is, you know, even wanting kids doesn't make it any easier to find your partner. Mm -hmm. You know, when when someone says then like, oh, maybe if that was the thing that would give, maybe you would be dot, dot, dot. It's like, no, either way, it's really important to find the match. Um, And the kids piece is 
there are lots of people who feel the way that you do um, about kids and not wanting them in their future. You'll find someone like that, right? Um, that's not the issue. It's it's more about like compatibility being prioritized. And that's something that I never heard talked about enough growing up is yeah. what is compatibility even like at a like emotional, mental, physical level. It was always about the salary or mm-hmm. even the other day, you know, we were Uh, My mom was like, oh, a friend showed me this bio data for someone like maybe your sister. And we were looking at it and I was like, all of this is information she doesn't care about. Like, why would she care what he makes or his university or the list of his grandparents or Mm -hmm. parents and siblings? Like, I think they want to know personality traits and, you know, whether when you fight, you're going to be able to make up in a healthy way. Like, these are the things that are important. Um, But I just feel like we haven't grown up with. So we start to look at these components as make or break. Um, And I, I really appreciate you. I think it's so powerful to hear this perspective because we don't hear it often enough, but it doesn't mean that it's not the right way to live if that's what you want. Um, So yeah, thank you. (laughs) No, of course. And I just, again, I want to echo that you're totally right. What you're talking about uh, and what our parents grew up with, I think is logistical compatibility. That's how I would describe it. Mm -hmm. And what we're talking about is emotional compatibility. And that wasn't a privilege that they were afforded. And it's really difficult to navigate that, especially without any sort of kind of role model guidance, you know, like we we learn from each other, but that wasn't modeled in our parents. And so, yeah, you're totally right about that. And, and I even, I have empathy for their generation where like, they just don't understand, you know, a lot of what we're looking for and I get it. And it looks really confusing, but you know, like that's, these are just two different ways of thinking about it. And so, um, yeah, I'm glad that it feels like our generation is embracing this a lot more. That's, all of that's really good, but it can feel like such a significant disconnect when we're talking about our partners and how we want to live our lives and everything. And our parents just don't know quite how to imagine it. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. I have so much to say about that, like even now, you know, but um, I want to make sure that I don't talk for three hours. Um, But (laughs) shifting gears to one of the things that I really wanted to touch on was the fact that when we talk about this identity of embracing the, quote, bad Indian daughter, this isn't just about our relationships and familial status. It can also be the choices we're making around our lifestyle and our careers. Um, So I'd love to understand how maybe if this resonates with you at all, was your career any factor in also thinking, hey, maybe this is a title that I'm just going to get comfortable with? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I think, um, yeah, (laughs) I'm just laughing. It was such a huge part of it. So, you know, my career, I went to social work school. Um, I know that We're recording this in 2021, in March of 2021. So we're almost a year out from the kind of racial reawakening and a lot of folks learning about um, racial equity, post-George Floyd and things Mm -hmm. like that. Um, That that knowledge and experience actually kind of came to me. I think I, I went through my own reckoning during social work school. And so that was in... 2013 was when I was really in the thick of it and kind of in living in New York and then coming back to California where my parents are and then just hearing, you know, a lot of like the anti-Black sentiment that is in our community. And mm-hmm. sometimes not necessarily, there there can be like a little bit of like, 
anti-immigrant sentiment. My parents don't do that at all, but you know, I've heard that from other community members. And so, but the anti-black thing is really big. And so, um, and it's not like, you know, my parents would talk about this um, at dinner every day or something like that, but it just would come up in conversation. And so I think the big narrative around that, of course, was that, you know, these people don't want to work and we as immigrants come here and we want to work. And there are other immigrants from other communities that are also really hardworking. And there's kind of like that Mm -hmm. mindset. And that was so difficult for me to really stomach, uh, you know, being (laughs) one semester into social work school and kind of wanting to torch everything. And so, um, so that was hard. And I remember just like getting into heated arguments with my dad and crying. I was like, not my most articulate by any means. I remember at some point I Mm -hmm. was just like, this is not the way to win an argument, but I was like, you came on a plane and like, they were brought on ships. It's not the same thing. That is like not how you want to approach this conversation <laughs> with your parents at all or, or anyone really. Like it was like I was not doing well on that, but it was so emotional for me. And well, then of course. <laughs> it's your parents, right? Like, I mean, going back to what we were talking about with approval and like the attachment, like one might argue too, like, why is it so important for you to like get your parents on board? Like you just live your mm-hmm. life, but it's also not enough. I connect with that. It's not enough for me to just be like by myself. I feel like I need to bring my family along. Mm -hmm. Um, And not to say that my opinion is correct, but at least to pose the question of, have you thought about this? Especially because there's such a hypocrisy hypocrisy we feel in being people that we also came, but recognizing how much privilege and the immigration laws, like everything was very different when our parents came versus. So it's not as simple as that argument you mentioned of like, well, I worked hard, immigrants worked hard. I've heard that so many times. Um, And, you know, why can't blank just do this like we did? And Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh my gosh, it does not work the same. And how did you internalize that as someone of color in this society, mm-hmm. um, which highlights a whole nother, right, like kind of affiliation of white society and supremacy? One thing I, I do want to say is that, you know, we're talking about our parents' generation, but our generation has plenty of work to do on yes. ourselves as well. And so, you know, but for the purposes of this conversation, let's really kind of focus on um, how this is all playing out with our parents. So, yes, I come back from social work school with my interactivist kind of lit up. And um, and again, it, that kind of that cognitive dissonance that I was referencing is present again, where, you know, I'm talking with my parents who are the entire reason that I have chosen this field. Service is so deeply embedded in mm-hmm. our culture and our values and what they've taught and compassion and seeing everyone as equals and things like that. Like all of those things are things that I ultimately have learned from them and that drove me to make my career decisions to then come back to listening to this, I think was really, really challenging. And so to, to kind of figure that out and make peace with it, I think it was really important for me to feel like, you know, we can kind of bring them along for the journey and we could kind of evolve together. And you're right. I don't know that my opinion is my, my opinion is not always going to be right, but at least let's figure out how to engage in this dialogue and kind of cover our blind spots mm-hmm. and, uh, and, 
and go through this together. So I think that was a big part of it. And then the, the part about embracing the bad daughter and all of that, again, is kind of getting back to this conflict. You cannot have conversations about racial equity, about any any of these issues without conflict, mm-hmm. but especially racial and gender equity. I would say like those are two that just are really highly emotionally charged topics for a lot of people. Um, and so you're going to have to kind of own that and you're going to have to displease them and say things that they don't want to hear. And t- for me to be able to do that and really stand in my truth of my experience and what I've learned um, and what I've also experienced in the field, I have to be willing to not be that perfect kind child that you want me to be that's just saying yes to everything. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the word conflict, especially in having that type of dialogue with parents, which very good point. Like our generation is equally guilty of, you know, needing to have some do with this work. But for the sake of this focus, um, it's interesting to me because like a, a lot of the times with parent, my parents, for example, um, in the beginning of these conversations, like if it was like a journey, I noticed that there was sort of a why introduce conflict? Like, why is there a need to mm-hmm. challenge? Like, let's just yeah. go with the way things are. And even if that means that there's something that like, you know, could be better, but just don't push it, you know, type of mentality. And I mm-hmm. always thought that was really fascinating, which again might connect back to this collectivist piece of when you resist, when you introduce that conflict, you uh introduce a lack of harmony, you create tension, and it's not always a good thing. So these cultures, I feel like, can also sometimes impound. And then, you know, it's not even American friends of ours might probably feel the same way of like, I'm trying to talk about this with my parents, but I feel this resistance of like, no, this is the way we should go. So I'm not saying it's exclusive, but I really do feel like sometimes like the need for harmony can also create a conflict avoidance. And Even Mm -hmm. bringing parents along to the fact that this conversation is important, even just having a conversation, we might not agree at the end of it. How did you get your parents to get on board with that? (laughs) Um, So it's a work in progress, (laughs) but I I will also say, and you just nailed it. And again, I want to pull that out, which is that um, I think so much of our society and our culture is has this deeply embedded value of conflict avoidance and obedience, right? Mm-hmm. And not not rocking the boat. And so that obedience to authority specifically, and I say obedience intentionally, I think that is the word to use. And so, um, yeah, I think that that's such an important part of it. And so I think when I, so it, it has definitely been a journey with them. I think that it, so it starts with education and empathy, I think, Mm -hmm. Um, I I point out those values to then be able to bring that empathy back to my parents, understanding that that's the culture that they grew up in. And they feel, you know, like an ancestral fear. They feel like, you know, society is upside down and things don't make sense if, you know, we're, we're out in the streets protesting or if like we're having an uprising or whatever. And so that like pulls on those things for them. So I think the first step to me being able to engage in these conversations was me doing my own work (laughs) to then be able to come to them with empathy because there is not going to be, it's not going to be a productive conversation if we're just yelling at each other, yelling at each other or in a heated argument. And then um, that education piece. And for me, what I would do was that, you know, even 
like even post George Floyd, which I think was, or, or actually rather in the middle of those protests, I think that was a really pivotal point, uh, especially for my, my dad and I. So my dad and I would engage in more of these conversations. My mom still kind of tends to avoid them. But um, I, so I'm going to use him as an example and also because I'm really proud of him. But during that moment, the first thing that he was saying was that, you know, he understood what was going on was wrong. He immediately had empathy for our, for our black brothers and sisters. And um, yet he was like, I don't know why they are protesting and rioting and looting though, right? Like that's, that's where we draw the line and that's not good. And that's what a lot of people faced with their parents. Mm -hmm. And then I, you know, I like really, I realized that at times it's better for me to articulate because I can kind of meet them in the middle, but more often than not, I will find other resources that are far more articulate than I am. And so Trevor Noah's video, um, if you saw that being circulated, that was a huge one. I thought it was so powerful. And I asked my dad, I was like, can we just watch this together one day? And I had asked him in the morning. Um, so I didn't, you know, like ambush him or anything. And I was like, when you come home from work, would you mind pausing CNN for, you know, a co- <laughs> 20 minutes and us watching this together? Because I think it did a really great job. And so we watched that together. And then, um, you know, my dad, it was just so sweet. He was like, wow, like I, this really shifted this for me. I think this was really explained in such a different way. And then we were able to process that together. And then similarly, I can't, I am blinking on the name of, um, there was another video. I think her name was Kim or Kimberly. I can't remember, but she was, she was talking about the fact that basically, um, kind of the, the systemic oppression, the historic systemic oppression of black folks over the years. And just talking about, you know, all of the different incidents. And ultimately she was saying that, you know, we're lucky that we just want, I'm going to misquote her, but I think it was like respect and not revenge or something like that. She had an amazing video. And so then, you know, a couple of days later, I asked my dad if we could watch that together and then we watched it together and then we talked about it. And so that I think that kind of having patience, asking for consent, <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and sending all of these different things, I think was was helpful in us finally having a more um, progressive conversation about this. And then ultimately, I would say like the last step was that I knew that there is still this kind of us and them experience that Mm -hmm. my dad was having about um, the protesters and what was going on. And so in my heart of hearts, I was like, you know what, if I can just get him to go out to a protest for like five minutes... I think that will that will just change the game entirely. Like him being out there and experiencing people firsthand and feeling that that feeling of being all together and also like demystifying what the protests are. They're not just like looters running around. It's people that really care about a cause. That will make such a difference. And I, I knew that because I remember my experience at my first protest, you know, in 2013, I think was the first time that I went to a protest. And so um, so I really wanted to do that. But Again, I, I, I knew it was kind of hard to frame it as, you know, we are, yes, we are kind of, I'm changing the, the narrative around the, the writers for my dad when we've been watching these videos together, but it's still hard for me to say, yes, let's go out and let's join them. We're one with the movement and we've got to do this. And so, so I had really thought hard about it and I asked him, 
I was like, you know what, can we just do, do you want to go to the protests and hand out water to people? And the reason that I felt like if anything would work, it would be that was because that service orientation that I know that my parents have and that they've embedded in Mm. me. So again, being able to connect with these values and say, hey, you know what, like these protesters are doing such an amazing job and they're raising, you know, the profile of this movement in national media. And why don't we go out and help them? We don't necessarily have to identify with them just yet, but we can just go out and hand water to them because they must be so hungry and thirsty and, you know, it's COVID and everyone's exhausted. And I did make sure that we wore N95 masks. I was really concerned about everyone's safety, but that was what I had pitched to my dad. And he said, yes. And we went there. Yeah. And it like, like, I have to tell you, it was like such an emotional experience for me. I've just never felt so much pride and connection for something on a social issue as I did through, you know, my dad and I being at a protest for an hour that day. And so it was just a game changer. And coming back, you know, I was then able to kind of connect back the protesters that we would see on TV and sometimes that were being, you know, sensationalized and and talked about as looters and kind of bringing that back to our experience at the protest. So that was kind of a a full <laughs> a full narrative of the journey of, you know, one of the ways my dad and I were were able to make progress and connect on this. I'm so glad I asked that question now because <laughs> that is such an incredible story and there's so many things that I learned from your approach. Um, one being the consent piece. I think that's so important, um, especially uh-huh. what we were talking about earlier with parents. Like it's easy to get emotional with them. That's why it's hard to have these conversations with family is that you do impose a lot of your childhood real dynamics. And it's just a little bit more complicated than talking about it with a friend where we can uh-huh. keep things a little bit more objective. Um, that really resonated, consent. And then your piece of meeting, it doesn't have to be that they directly agree with you. That's not necessarily always the, okay, that's the final line. In fact, you're probably doing more by saying, how can we help then? Um, mm-hmm. And I loved your piece of bringing water. It is something that I think that type of um, service element is very something universally that connects, especially if I look at South Asian religions, um, Mm -hmm. any religion, um, I think that's something that people just connect with culturally is like, how can I do service? And so I think what a beautiful way, basically, I just have like a huge applause to give you essentially of like, what a wonderful way to do that. I experienced that with your parents and bring your dad along um, and share that together. Now it's both of your story. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I, I love hearing that reflected back because it is something that I'm, I, I mean, really most of the credit goes to him, of course. And it's just something that I'm so proud of in our relationship and in his journey. And I'm proud of him of being like open enough to be able to listen to that pitch. <laughs> yeah. Now doing that, obviously, like I know you weren't like, oh, this just happened and occurred to me overnight. Like there is probably a lot of work that you did by yourself (laughs) to understand how can I now translate my passion and connect. Ultimately, it's to connect and feel united with your family and with society and being able to reconcile and balance that so that it's something that you can live with both Mm -hmm. um, in harmony with. So what type of tools or resources have you used to be able to progress through that evolution? Yeah. So, um, 
I, I would say external tools. I don't have a ton. Like I would love to see a guide on conversation starters with your parents or yeah. something like that. <laughs> so again, shouts to hash or not hashtag, um, Brown girl therapy. I think she does an amazing job. Like yes. those resources would be so wonderful. Um, I would say for my own toolkit, uh, a lot of the work has come from my own therapy on myself, my, not my therapy on myself, my <laughs> own self-reflection and engaging in therapy. How are you feeling today, Shanahi, from Shanahi? <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, exactly. So um, starting my journey with therapy, I think, was huge. And I always, I so highly recommend anyone going to therapy that is even really curious about it. Um, I and you know, if anyone ever wants to reach out, I'm happy to talk more about it because I think it can also really, again, be a, a process for people where you may not connect with your first therapist right away. I know that, you know, folks kind of shop around at times, or for me, at least I did go with the therapist that I met or, um, that I found through an organization in New York. Um, and actually I can give them a shout. It's NIP, the National Institute for Psychotherapies, but they, um, they do a sliding scale model. So you're able to pay what you can afford based on your income. And at the time I was in grad school. So that's how I found my therapist. Um, and I feel like it, it is such a, like building that relationship with my therapist has been very intentional. I would say it took me about a year to really trust her, if I'm going to be honest, because mm -hmm. I am slow to trust, especially with these things. And especially like really trusting that someone that wasn't Indian could understand my experience of growing up and existing in the world. That's totally so, fair. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So we put in a ton of work to our relationship. And then... Um, yeah, I think we, I've been working with her for about four years on and off. There are times where I took breaks. Um, and so, yeah, it was, that I think has probably been my greatest tool personally. Um, and just having a space specifically. And I, again, I really want to, I, I think therapy has been destigmatized in a lot of ways already uh, within at least our friend groups. But I still think that there are still stigmas around talking about it. It's still kind of a ta taboo subject and, and still a lot with my parents too. And so I just want to call those things out that, um, first of all, if you feel like you could use a therapist or if you're even curious about it, start the process right now because, mm -hmm. you know, it'll take a while for the intake and it might take some time for you to really build that. But also, um, you know, it's it's important for us to really talk about this, especially within the South Asian community. And I describe this a lot, but it's not like to me, therapy is just like the gym for your mind. There are no stigmas around going to a gym to work out your body and to, mm -hmm. to have like a healthy practice in that regard for your body. And yet for therapy, for whatever reason, there are all of these stigmas attached and people feel like you should be able to do it on your own. And I have friends and I have something else, but we would never say that about our body. Like we would never say like, no, I'm not going to go to the gym or to a personal trainer because I have friends that work out and that's enough for me, you yeah. know? <laughs> and so it's just, it's like ludicrous that we don't take our mental health as seriously as we do our physical health, when in fact, it's the biggest part of it. And so um, that's been a big part of my journey. I would also say 
uh, a lot of openness with my friends um, and a, a mm. lot of vulnerability. And so I follow Brene Brown's work as well. Um, I'm Dare to Lead certified. And so I'm a big fan of her work. Oh, wow. And I think, yeah, bringing that into even my conversations with my friends and kind of just removing the taboo of social of certain subjects has also been really, really helpful. So you don't feel like you're in it alone. And when we're talking about taboo subjects, I mean like um, money, sex, like all of these things. I think those are probably the two biggest things, but also even in certain ways, conflict with our parents and family shame and things like that. Like it's so important for us to, you know, not share it necessarily with everyone or post it on social media, but have a couple of people where you can have really authentic conversations and bring in things that are very uncomfortable. Those two things I think are hugely important and that I would recommend. Yes, completely agree. The other thing that you mentioned about therapy and normalizing it with our families too really resonated for me because thinking back to when I was in college and my sister had gone back to India with my parents to do middle school and high school, she was experiencing a lot of depression. And I remember telling my sister like, hey, would you think about going to therapy? And um, my dad actually ended up calling me later and he got really upset with me because he said that I was, you know, sharing these ideas about therapy that she didn't (laughs) need to know about. Um, Mm -hmm. And don't put that in her head just because you think, you know, you're progressive about it. And this is, you know, something that now he has really changed his perspective on. But back then he really resisted it. Um, Fast forward, you know, it's now we're at a place where thanks to also the work that my sister has done with him, he has really moved on from a place of when I tell him like, oh, I went to therapy before he'd get awkward. Slowly, he started to be like, oh, cool. Slowly, he started to get to like, so what do you guys talk about? Then that moved on to jokes about like, oh, like, blame it on me, I guess. Like I did do like a lot, you know, and like he started Mm -hmm. to kind of like poke fun of himself. To now, like, I actually, you know, I've been experiencing a lot of mental health, um, I guess, like, challenges. And so my dad has been calling me every day to talk through it. And I think that's something that, like, it took 12, 13 years to, for him to get there. Yeah. But it happened. You know, it is a journey. Um, but it, it does pay off. And now my relationship with therapy is so much different because – I had to choose it for myself with or without approval, but now it's yeah. even better because I'm like, I do get to supplement it with the love and unconditional support of my parents as well. Yeah. Gosh, that's so that's so powerful. I really appreciate you saying that. Um, and I can also share that for my parents, I don't know that my parents, they're probably close to where your dad is, but not quite there. So, um, and it's just so funny because when we're talking about stigmas and taboos, the most ironic part was that I had so many internalized stigmas about it. And I am like a highly self-reflective social worker, like of all of the people, (laughs) you know, it's, it's just so funny. Like, it's just so deeply embedded in us. And I kept, you know, trying to like do it by myself and feeling like a kind of shame about it. And then certainly when I was bringing it, I, I didn't talk to my parents about it for a while. And then ultimately, you know, I told them that I was going to therapy and I, I did feel the shame of that. And my sister had actually, I think she had technically started therapy before I did and had kind of talked to them about it and broken the barrier a little bit. But um, but it was what what I know it came down to for my parents and still to this day, sometimes they still view it as a reflection of something they've done wrong. 
like my mom feels like I am in therapy because she did something wrong. And, and like, thanks to therapy, I've been able to kind of disown that and say like, you know, she's on her own journey, Mm -hmm. but her feelings about therapy are not my responsibility at all. And she, you know, she has done some things right. And she's, you know, done some things that didn't help that much, but that's literally every parent. There is no perfect parent. So it's not about that at all. And it's not about her at all. And so, and I think like, again, I've been able to communicate that with her and they have made a ton of progress. I loved your progression of, you know, it going from like something where we weren't supposed to talk about it and it would be really triggering for them to like something that they had a little bit of acceptance around and curiosity about, um, sometimes it is, it is more positive and sometimes still, I think they're struggling with that. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I, you know, one thing is even uh, going back to our conversation about kids and thinking about the role of a mother, whether or not you're a perfect parent, you could still go to therapy and still benefit. Like, in fact, if you are the perfect parent and you never introduce conflict, for example, that could be a problem too, because kids might mm-hmm. want to talk about, I didn't see, my parents were always so harmonious. I yep. don't know how to see, uh, deal with conflict healthily, for example. That is something that has come up with a friend of mine too, where, you know, it's, it doesn't matter. You don't have to have something terrible happen to you for you to go to therapy. It's literally you just being able to deal with almost the most fascinating topic in your life, which is yourself and Mm -hmm. figuring out how to just be a better version of yourself. Oh, a hundred percent. And also I just want to add that again, there is no perfect parent because there's no perfect human. Mm -hmm. You know, it just literally doesn't exist. You can be the most kind, loving person and, and like your children will still deal with their own interpretations of the world. So it does. It literally doesn't matter. It's just a key component to help. Exactly. My fiance and I joke about that all the time where we're like, literally, like we could do things all right. We could do things all wrong. Either way, you can fuck up your child. So like, uh-huh. we're just going to have to go for it, you know, if that's what we want. So it's just yeah. a shoot in the dark. All right. So as custom, I'm going to end with the chip chip round. I'll be asking a few fun questions and I would love your unfiltered response. Sure. Are you game? I am up for it. Let's do it. Yes. Love the energy. So number (laughs) one, the celebrity you would drop everything in your life for and run after to live with. You know what? I would I should have a better response for this because I used to have my like five men, you know, at any given time. (laughs) But like I can't get over I'm probably the last one to learn about this, but I just saw Britney Spears' boyfriend, Sam, I I don't even know how to say his last name. Um, so I don't want to mispronounce it. But he is so hot. Like I can't (laughs) I just was like looking at him. He's in Fifth Harmony's music video, and dang, he is smoking. So right now. I, I don't even have to marry him. I just, you know, want to spend the day with him. Yes. <laughs> just a passionate affair. <laughs> um, this month is Women's History Month, as we know. So in right now, what is your favorite women-owned business at the moment that you would want to plug or talk about? Yeah, there are actually two that I love. Uh, they're social enterprises. And so one is Purpose Jewelry. Um, they're associated with International Sanctuary, and I, I love what they do. They work to combat uh, human trafficking in India and a couple of other places. And mm-hmm. so 
their survivors actually make jewelry. And the second one is uh, this company called Gifted by Free From. And so Mm -hmm. you can look them up. Uh, It's giftedbyfreefrom.org. And they have these beautiful boxes with fun gifts for your girlfriends. Um, And all the proceeds go to paying living wages to survivors of domestic violence. So those are two organizations that I love. I've gifted from them quite a bit. Love to support them. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to look them up. Thank you. You're having a rough day. What's your go-to self-care activity? Ooh, um, (laughs) I should say something like breathing or something else, which sometimes I do, but it's honestly just turning some sort of comedy on to binge. That's completely self-care for me. And then probably diving into, admittedly, some Flaming Hot Cheetos. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) It's a two-pronged approach for (laughs) Shadi. What is your favorite concept, and maybe I should say life-changing concept, you learned from therapy that you wouldn't have known had you not gone? Ooh, um, I don't know that I wouldn't have eventually learned this, but just like learning to separate others projecting from my own thoughts Mm -hmm. is so powerful. Like projecting ideas about, again, my life, my work, my career path, my se- my sexuality, everything, my family yeah. standing, all of that uh, has been a huge gift from therapy. Incredible. And lastly, what is the best thing, in your opinion, about the bad Indian daughter life? <laughs> um, I would say the best thing is that I actually love my parents and I'm so close to my parents. And so in being a bad Indian daughter, I am still like a very loving, wonderful child. And my parents are the the same way. Like I think we have a really close relationship. And so actually in embracing this bad Indian daughter, I think we were able to be more authentic with each other. Mm. And, um, And just honestly, like being able to feel seen and freer in my relationship and with my parents and shifting that I think is just so beautiful. So now I I think we're still on the path, of course, and and we're all works in progress, but being able to have the most authentic relationship that I can with my parents and for us to love each other so much, I think is the, the best thing about it. Absolutely. I can't agree more with that. And I love that because, you know, even when we talk about like our parents' fear of sometimes our hesitancy around therapy, it's sometime around also like, oh, like, are you trying to differentiate or is it about us doing something wrong? And actually that whole journey brings us closer mm-hmm. um, and actually more intimately than in a way that you couldn't have done without it. So I love that you uh, that was your response and how you framed that. Thank you so much, Shanahi, for spending this time with me. I have enjoyed so much how (laughs) where we started, you know, when we first talked in November, where we got here today on March 19th of 2021 um, in such different places in the world and then even our own lives. Um, I'm just so grateful that you took the time to share all this because I just think it's such a great ripe topic that we've only brushed the surface on. So I really, really appreciate you and your insights. Gosh, it was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. And again, thank you so much for what you're doing for the community. I'm so grateful.